0: I'm Brooke Gurley, and you are listening to Untold Stories, the cases that shaped the civil rights movement, presented by Law & Crime. This podcast is the audio adaptation of my video series titled The Untold Stories of the Civil Rights Movement. And now, on to this week's episode. What's up, everyone? It's me, Brooke. Welcome back to the Untold series, where each week I look at what I think are important civil rights cases. I discuss them, break them down, and I let you know why I think they're important. Whether you have joined via Facebook, Instagram, the podcast, or whatever other device that I I may not even know of, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Oh, and before we get started, if you could do me a big favor and hit the share button, I don't know where it is. Hit the share button. I would greatly appreciate you sharing this information out to people. Okay, so for this week, we're looking at a different area of law. We're looking at the death penalty in the case called McCleskey versus Kemp. It's from 1987, it's the year right after Batson versus Kentucky, which we discussed last week. Now this case is viewed by many legal scholars as the Dred Scott decision of our day, and as we get into the facts of this case and the way that the court ruled, I think you'll see why people see it as the Dred Scott of our day. So let's get into the facts, shall we? Great. Wonderful. Okay, so the facts, there are multiple facts that I want to get into. So. Focusing first on the the facts involving the defendant, you had the defendant Warren McCleskey. He um, grew up kind of in a rough environment. Uh, He and his six siblings, they lived in different family homes throughout. Their mother was involved in, I guess, with a guy who wasn't very nice. Um, But his sister said he was a smart guy, but got involved somehow with some other people with the wrong crowd. And so one night in May of 1978, he, him and three other guys decided to rob a jewelry store. But then after coasting the area, they decided, let's go somewhere else. And they ended up at Dixie Furniture Store. And this is all happening in Georgia. And so during that holdup, they tied up the people who were in the store. But someone apparently set off a silent alarm that brought Officer Frank Schlatt. And so during this robbery, the officer walks down the center aisle to investigate what's going on. And he shot twice. One, I think, was in his shoulder that bounced off and the other one was in the face. That's what killed him. Um, McCleskey is African American, Officer Schlatt was white. Now it's not really clear, and that's always been debatable, who actually fired the shot that killed Officer Schlatt. All four guys could have been sentenced um, for the murder, for felony murder, because they were all partaking in a felony when the officer was killed. However, it was McCleskey who was fingered as the guy who killed Officer Schlatt by one of his co-defendants and then by an informant in the jail. Now it's important to note that in this case, getting back to Batson, um, the prosecutor used seven of his 15 peremptory challenges to strike black people from the, the jury pool. Now McCleskey, he appeals this case throughout the state court and he's denied on all fronts. And then finally he files what's called a habeas petition. So once you've gone through the court, the state court level, you can file a habeas petition in federal court. And try to um, win release that way or have your sentence overturned. So he files a habeas petition in the district court. He's denied. It's appealed to the 11th Circuit. Um, they deny it and then it goes all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. Now that's one part of the background to this case. The other part, there are two other important things that are going on in the background before this case reaches the Supreme Court. First, you have Furman versus Georgia, which is a Supreme Court case back in 1972. That essentially put a moratorium or stopped death penalty cases saying, look, there's discrimination and uh, racial discrimination disparities in the system. We need to figure out how to do this how to have the death penalty in such a way that it's not having this racial disparity. So there was a de facto moratorium on the death penalty that was later reversed with the case of Greg versus Georgia. All these cases are in Georgia. Like Georgia just loves to kill people. Now, in addition to the Furman case that's kind of lingering in the background, dealing with the racial disparities and the handing out of the death penalty. You had someone by the name of Professor David Baldus, who was a professor at the University of Iowa Law School, and he gathered data from Georgia on death penalty. And actually, as a matter of fact, I think at some point he was in discussion with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund because they were, at this time, going out doing litigation and trying to get the death penalty abolished altogether. And they're looking for, one, a test case, which is how they ended up with McCleskey and defending him during this appeals process, but also interacting with this Professor David Baldus. And Baldus was like, you know, I'm trying to look at the statistics. I don't know what the statistics will say. He was actually very skeptical that they would find that there was racial disparity even after Furman, because what the Furman court said is like, you have to pause and figure out how to have the death penalty in such a way that there's not this arbitrary racial disparity going on. So Professor Baldus agreed to look at the data and to report his findings. And the NAACP, um, who at this point the lead attorney there was John Boger, and he was like, look, if you don't find any racial discrimination, great. But if you do, then be a witness for us. And it's like, okay, I don't know what I'll find, but I'll I'll look at the data. And what he ended up finding is that um, no matter which model he ran the data, that it was the the race of the victim determined whether or not someone was sentenced to death. Specifically, if the victim was white, then the defendant was 4.3 times more likely to be given the death penalty. So there was a valuing of white life over any other life, really. Now, of course, people were skeptical of Professor Ballas's study, and he's like, "Look, if you have a model you want me to run it to, I think it may have been the district court." who wanted to run the data a different way. And actually, when they did that, the data showed even more so the disparity that Professor Baldus showed in his study. And with that, McCleskey and his attorney went to the United States Supreme Court and said, hey, look, we're still showing racial disparity. This is in violation of the Eighth Amendment, cruel and Unusual Punishment, as well as the Fourteenth Amendment, Equal Protection Clause. So that brings us to the issue. The issue in this case was whether or not the statistical evidence put forth by McCleskey shows that his death sentence was in violation of the Eighth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment Equal Protection Clause. The holding. The court ruled, no. It did not at all. The reasoning. (sighs) The court's reasoning here is where we get to this similar Dred Scott type of vibe. First of all, the court ruled that yes, It acknowledged that there was some kind of disparity going on along racial lines, but said, we don't know why that is, and we're not willing to take this to its logical conclusion and say that this is based upon some impermissible racial discrimination. Instead, what the court said is that if McCleskey wants to show that his um, 14th and 8th Amendment rights are being violated, he needs to show specifically that either the judge, the prosecutor, or the juror, or jury members... um, had racial intent which is darn near impossible (laughs) to show what was going on in the minds of the jury the judge and the prosecutor Um, so they really heightened the standard that someone had to pass in order to prove racial discrimination so the court said yes we see this statistical information yes it's compelling but unless you can show that these particular jury jury members this particular prosecutor this particular judge intended to discriminate against you then that's not going to be enough And the court went on, and the court's decision was written by Justice Powell, who later regretted his ruling on this. In his biography, he said, "Um, if I could change one decision, it would be this one. But nevertheless, what he said is that, look, there is some degree of arbitrariness in our criminal justice system. There is the use of discretion. And in that use of discretion, these types of disparities are inevitable. Now Justice Powell continues on in this kind of logic and he says something again that's really quite egregious when you think about it. He says quote, Petitioner's claim taken to his logical conclusion throws into serious question the principles that underlie the entire criminal justice system. His claim easily could be extended to apply to other types of penalties and to claims based on unexplained discrepancies correlating to membership in other minority groups and even gender. The Constitution does not require that a state eliminate any dish demonstrable disparity that correlates with the potentially irrelevant factor in order to operate a criminal justice system that includes capital punishment. So essentially what Powell says here is like, look, if we actually accept the fact that the statistics shows that there is racial disparities built into the system, then the implication goes far beyond just death penalty. Then we have to consider everything else. And if we don't want to consider everything else, Instead, we'd rather pawn this decision off on the legislative body. Now, in a concurrent or descending opinion, Justice Brennan had a famous quote that addressed this specific point here. Justice Brennan says, Take on his face. Such a statement seems to suggest a fear of too much justice. Yet surely the majority would acknowledge that if striking evidence indicated that other minority groups or women or even persons with blonde hair were disproportionately sentenced to death, such a state of affairs would be repugnant the deeply rooted conceptions of fairness so their justice Brennan's words became famous there's a sphere of too much justice and that's essentially what the court is doing here they're saying well because there's an issue here we noticed that there probably are other issues and instead of addressing that we would rather again pawn it off to the legislative body um and say that they're better equipped to do that we can't do anything at all about that so what ended up happening well obviously McCleskey lost this appeal um because he couldn't, he couldn't prove that the judge, jury, or prosecutor had racial intent when sentencing him. But then he found out later that the criminal informant, Offie Evans, who allegedly got this confession out of McCleskey, had this history, he was a child molester, a child rapist, and he had this history of going into jail, testifying against people in key cases, and then his case was dropped or his sentence was lowered. And so again the same thing happened here. He was a star witness and because of that McCleskey was sentenced to death. Even the juries the jury members afterwards wrote affidavits saying, Had we known all of this background about the statement, about uh Evans's history of getting these lower sentences, we would not have ruled this way. Um and again McCleskey appealed and again his appeal was denied and then he was sentenced his death sentence was upheld, and he was eventually executed, September twenty fifth, nineteen ninety one. So, why is this case important? There's so many reasons why this case is important. <laughs> so, this case is infuriating. Um, and fresh, it's very frustrating because when it comes to issues of race and racism, you know, everyone's looking for some kind of objective fact and truth. And here you have McCleskey bringing this study, this very exhaustive study, saying there is racial disparity built into the system. This isn't what I feel. This isn't anecdotal. This is statistical. And the court's saying, yeah, but we're going to need that subjective proof. We need to know that that was their intent, which now we're taking back into this level of emotions, which everyone claims they want to get out of. And so for the court to completely dismiss subjective facts of racial disparity shows that it's not really even about that. It's not even about what is actually going on. It's about whether or not they have really the will to address the issue of racial disparity in the system. And the results show that they did not. I think this case is also important because it shows how the burden is continually put on those who are discriminated against to address discrimination. It's not put on those who have had this pattern and practice in the history of discriminated against people. It's those who have been uh, discriminated against. Those who again have this burden. Of um, racial discrimination we are the ones who must combat the issue also this case is egregious because it shows that the system is okay with a degree of racial discrimination built into it and I think that's only um, permissible because the burden again is on black people if the the evidence shows something opposite I don't think people like Justice Scalia or even Justice Lewis would have said, well that's inevitable. It's only inevitable and therefore acceptable to you when you know that the statistical evidence is in your favor. And so this case shows that again, it goes back to what I was just saying, the burden is on the black person to combat something that is essentially not their issue. It's someone else's issue that you're the victim of. I also think this case is important because it shows, it discounts the ways in which racism functions in society. If you have a system in place, you need not have an individual actor that is functioning from mal-intent in order for there to be racism. And the court is turning a blind eye to that. Not just turning a blind eye, but saying that's okay. That's inevitable. We're comfortable with that. We're comfortable with the fact that our conclusion or the result of what is going on in our criminal justice system is essentially racist. So long as you can't prove that one particular person Is racist, then we're okay. We can bury our head in the sand, be an ostrich, and say, Well, but that person wasn't racist, or that person wasn't racist. Like, but yes, the system is racist. What are we going to do about it? It's ironic that the court would say that they were concerned about the criminal justice system and, and taking McCleskey's data to his logical conclusion will undermine the criminal justice system. The reality is the criminal justice system is already undermined by the statistical proof whether the court wanted to accept it or not. Now if you want to know more about this, I would highly recommend you listen to the oral arguments. I'll leave a link to that. I'll also leave a link to the study. It's a long study that um, Professor Baldis completed. Him and three other colleagues, they wrote, they did the study. I'll leave a link there. I'll also leave a link to some other stuff. I don't know. If you like this video, please be sure to hit the like button up, down. I, I never know where these things are. Please be sure to follow me on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, on Palookies World. Um, on Facebook, it's Palookies World Productions. I um, Of course, I have a blog. It's PalookiesWorld.com. If you go there and subscribe, you'll never miss a video because I'll always release it there as well. I'm on YouTube, It's my name, Brooke Gurley. And of course, of course, subscribe to the podcast. I'm on uh, iTunes and Spotify and leave a a review if you can. A five-star review is obviously preferred, but um, that's how people find the podcast, by leaving reviews and rating it. So I would greatly appreciate that. Until next time, be vigilant, be blessed. See you next week. To watch the video series that inspired this podcast, head over to my blog, PalookisRoyal.com, and make sure you subscribe. For more information on this series, like how do you spell Palookie, please check out the show notes. Finally, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you never miss an episode.